few mothers here as well. Hopefully you have, uh, hopefully I'm not the first person that said Happy Mother's Day to you today. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, another mark in our calendars that remind us to be thankful for things that uh, you so abundantly have blessed us with uh, in our mothers. We pray that today there would be at least somewhat a sense of rest, rejuvenation maybe for, for the moms who toil so hard for so many even more than their own children. We thank you that this this picture of, of tenderness and care is not it's not isolated just to mothers, but it's exemplified by by you. That we recognize how much we are loved when we see it exampled for us by those who are in our lives. Lord, as we as we turn today to your word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be the voice that is loudest. And that where words and explanations lack and fall short, your Spirit would would magnify in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Like I said, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be looking at another parable today, but we need to get a little context before we jump into the parable, so let's look at verses 21 and 22. It says, Then Peter came up and said to him, him being uh, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. So this is a section of the book of Matthew where Jesus is teaching us something about how we as as people within the fellowship of God should interact with sin and uh, repentance. In kind of in order to understand what Peter is saying in this passage, we've got to understand what just happened in this last section right before uh, Peter asks this question is the section where Jesus tells us how we should treat those who are sinning against us in the church. He says we should first uh, if, 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 a, if a brother has sinned against me, and he means brother or sister, not just men here. If, if, if a Christian, a follower, uh, sins against me, how should I respond? Well, I should first go to that person quietly and with humility and love, and I should confront the sin. Say, if somebody stole from you, you should go to them and say, hey, I know you took that. And if there's repentance, great. But if there's not, then there's the next step. 
The next step is you gather two or three who maybe witnessed it also, but or maybe people who have some sort of authority, maybe uh, an elder in the church or the pastor or your Sunday school teacher, whatever it might be, you bring them along and you confront the sin again. And if they repent, great. If not, there's another step. Take it to the church. Now, when Jesus says church in the Old Testament relate or Old Testament time frame that Jesus finds himself in, because the New Testament starts in Jesus' death and resurrection, even though we're learning about it in what we call the New Testament. When he says church, he means the, the synagogue. So we gather together. We what do we do? We do a couple of things. We we worship God in, in praise, singing. We worship God by by looking at his word and hearing it taught. We worship God by fellowship with each other, fellowshipping with each other. Yeah, that was right. That's what they did in the synagogue. And, and the church today is largely marked by what they did in the synagogue, which is which is not the temple. The temple was a place where you made sacrifices. You, you slaughtered a lamb and you burnt it or whatever, whatever the sacrifice might have been. The synagogue was like this, right? You gathered together around, around the book, the Old Testament. And a rabbi would teach you, a teacher in, in Hebrew, rabbi. So when he says the church, that's what he means. The gathering, the local gathering of, of followers of God, worshipers of God. This is what you should do. And so if a brother sins against us, this is what we should do. All the while, there's this assumption that there's unrepentance. But in Peter's mind, something clicks, right? Something changes. He goes, he goes okay, what happens if my brother repents of this? How many times should I forgive him? And again, not for all sins, not all different types of sins, but but a particular sin. What if he? What if I confront him because he stole from me, and he says, "Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, I forgive me." Okay. Forgive. And then the next day, he come. You you wreck. You see, he stole again. You go to him, and he say, "You you stole again." He said, "Oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me?" Yeah, I forgive you. Oh, oh, he stole again the next day. Well, how many times should I do this? In rabbinic teaching. The teaching of the rabbis, the, the, the teachers of the synagogue, and rabbinic teaching, there was a there was a standard set uh, three times, excuse me, three times. That's how many times you were responsible to forgive somebody? The fourth time, done with you. I don't have to I don't have to seek your forgiveness anymore. I don't have to I, I don't or I don't have to seek your repentance anymore, and I don't have to deal with you anymore. I can I can treat you like an outsider. Like a Gentile or a tax collector, I can, I can disassociate myself with you because you've sinned against me too many times. That fourth time, that's it. Now, for all of us in the room, we're probably happy that we're not under rabbinic teaching anymore, I would, I would imagine. For all you husbands in here on Mother's Day, how many times has your wife forgiven you for the same annoying thing that you did? And, I would venture a guess, much more than four. So, G, so Peter, he comes to Jesus, he says, what about seven times? What about twice, twice what they say plus one? Seven times. Peter, I think, is at this point, knowing Peter, he's at this point thinking pretty highly of himself. Look how, look how forgiving and and gracious I am to all these people who sin against me seven times. And three is a nice 
holy number and seven is an even better holy number because it's a bigger holy number. And Peter is such a forgiving guy, right? And Jesus says, no, I don't say seven times. I say 77 times. Now, some of you who have heard this before may be going, I thought it was 70 times seven times. Which, doing the math, is 490 times, which is much significantly bigger of a number than 77 times. But, okay, the Greek is a little bit confusing. It could go either way. Most modern scholars think that it's probably the 77 times. But let's be real here. 77 times is still an absurd amount of times to forgive somebody for the same offense. Imagine every day your your spouse, let's go back to your spouse, forgives you for the same thing. You wake up in the morning and you shout at her for no reason. And you go, oh man, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. And you do that every morning for 77 days? That's two and a half months. Can you imagine Still forgiving somebody at that point? What Jesus is doing here, though, is he's giving us an absurd example of 77 times. Yes, 490 times is more times than that. That's over a year. But, but really, is it much different? And, and if, you've, if you've heard this and are, and, and are prepared to go home today and get a piece of paper out and write, Ryan Klotzel has sinned against me and I've forgiven him, check one time, and you count it off 77, and then when you get to 77, you wash your hands of me, you're not hearing what Jesus is saying. It's not what it's about, is it? Right? I think we get this. He's giving us this absurd number, this number that's, that's in... in uh, Marks of seven. Seven being this complete number. Seventy-seven times ten is how you get seventy plus another seven. It's, it's absurd how to forgive somebody that many times, right? Well, then Jesus tells a parable. I like parables. And I think I'm growing to like them more and more as, we, as we've been looking at them here the last couple of weeks. Jesus tells a parable. Before we get into the parable, let's remind ourselves of a couple things on how we should read them. Now, no, my normal pattern is that I, I start the sermon by pr- praying, and then we read the text that we're going to look at, and then we kind of chunk our way through it, typically. Sometimes we change that up based on how what kind of text we're looking at. With the, with the, with the uh, parables, we, we really can't do that. Because we're 2,000 years removed from the context that Jesus is speaking into, so we need to be reminding ourselves of what he's talking about before we get to the weight of the parable, which is the twist, the thing that, like I said last week, makes the crowd murmur. The thing that goes, oh man, did you hear what he said? I can't believe he said that. And so we're going to stop. We're going to make sure we get all the context before we get to the murmur, and then we'll look at the, the second half. But the other thing that we have to do is we have to remind ourselves that there are many points to a parable. There's many things that we could learn from from the progression of the parable, but there's only one main point in the parable. There's only one pinnacle point that this is being told for. And that comes in the twist when the crowd around murmurs at what Jesus says. And all those other points, while we can learn from them, they're all... They're all magnifying or, 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 or building up that main point. 
So Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. Kingdom of heaven is is the citizenry of, of God's people that is already in existence here on this earth, but not yet fully understood. We are all, as followers of Christ, part of heaven now, but not full. And so some of these things should be realized now, but maybe not full. This could be compared to a king. Now, I'm going to clue you in on this a little bit early. The king is God. Almost always, the king is God. And he's going to settle accounts. He's got some people who owe him money. His servants. Who are the servants? Is it just Christians? No. It's probably all people. That's how we should understand this. Now, he's going to single out one particular person. That's, that's different. When he's talking about here, he's talking about all people. He says, he says, verse 24, When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Talent is a type of money. It's an amount of money. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, naturally fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, up until this point, everything seems pretty normal, except for one thing, the amount of money owed. So in the Roman Empire, there's a number of different types of, of, of coinage. It would be like us, we have the we have $1 bill, we have $5 bill, $10 bill, $20 bill, $100 bill. Back in the day, there used to be a $1,000 bill. The $1,000 bill is the talent. It's the largest, it's largest piece of money. Let me say it in a different way. It's the largest amount represented by a piece of money. There it is the right way to say it. It's the biggest thing in the Roman Empire. By the way, all of you who are peasants in the Roman Empire probably have never seen one because it's a lot of money it's a very large amount of money it's an amount it's, the, it's really kind of the type of money that's only really seen or used in business transactions or governmental transactions or when a king is receiving a tribute things like this so he owns he owes 10,000 10,000 of the largest currency in Roman existence. 10,000. You know what's really interesting? In the way Roman, Romans count, the way Romans have number, the number system, 10,000 is the highest number that is a normal number. Once you get past 10,000, now you've got to start adding things together. Now you've got, got to start going, we've got 10,000 and 500. It's not like counting in, in our counting. It's a whole different system. Once you get so ten thousand is the largest number. And the reason why it's the largest number is because really once you get past once you get past ten thousand, the human mind can't technically comprehend what that is. 
think about it for a minute. Think, try to think about, try to visualize for, for a minute. Visualize 100,000 of something. It's hard to do, right? And so Romans were just like, we'll just stop at 10,000 because it, after that, it's absurd. There's no, there's no collection of things that are that big. So it's, it's the most counted, highest amount. Right? It's a lot of money. Sometimes what, we, what we'll do is we'll say, okay, let's make, the, let's make the apples to apples comparison. What would it be in American, American currency today? And so some people have, have estimated to be several million to, to as high as $1 trillion. But I want to take it one step further because I think that's what Jesus is doing by giving us a number that's so beyond our capability of recognizing how big it actually is. Do you know what the, the debt in America is? It's $22 trillion. Can you fathom that? I can barely get past 22, let alone trillion. It's an absurd amount of money. It's an absurd amount of money that really is going to be for a nation as humongous as the United States is with a, with a gross domestic product as large as it's going to be really hard to pay off $22 trillion as a nation. And you know what? This one guy possesses all of it in debt. What Jesus is saying here is this man has a absurd, a, a, a stupid, absurd amount of debt. And the king has come to collect. And he goes, I can't pay it. Well, yeah, of course you can't pay it. It's, it's $22 trillion. Of course you can't pay it. And so the king says, well, okay, you can't pay it. So, so here's what happens. You get sold into slavery. Your family gets sold into slavery. And I'm not going to get all my money back, but I'm going to receive it. This, by the way, is completely within the rights of the king to do so. He's got every right to do this. Now, the crowd is going, this is an absurd number. Nobody's ever had that much debt. It's kind of like last week, whenever, whenever Jesus tells us that, that there was these workers who were there at 5 p.m. wanting to work until 6 p.m. That, that's not going to happen. But the scenario has been set. This is, a, this is a ridiculous amount of money, an amount of money that each one of us, we can't even really comprehend how, how large an amount of money that actually is, an amount of debt that that actually is. But, but let's, let's make sure we understand what Jesus is doing here. He's not talking about finances. He's talking about the debt that, that we have accumulated in our sin. Now again, let's, let's just take hypotheticals for a minute. Let's just pretend that we sin just one time a day. And if you just sin one time a day, man, congratulations, you are probably the holiest person I've ever met. But just for, just for some, some context here, let's just imagine, and let's just say you're 20. You sin one time a day, and the wages of sin is death. The debt that you have accumulated is death for that one sin every day of your life. You're 20 years old, that's 7,000 death sentences. Now sometimes we hear about people getting convicted of crimes where they've murdered multiple people and there's, there's oh, 10 death sentences. And we go, why did they do that? 
He's already dead. He doesn't need to be dead again and again and again and again. <laughs> this isn't 10 death sentences. This is, this is 7,000 death sentences. So you're, you're 40? That's 14,000? And then we, we have to start bringing in realization here that I'm not sinning. I'm not sinning once a day. Come on. I may be sinning once an hour. On average. Once a minute sometimes. Let's be very clear. Our debt is $22 trillion to our Lord, to our God, to the God and creator and sustainer of the universe. Our debt is absurd. It's stupid absurd. And we like, like this man, we beg, we, we, we throw ourselves down and we beg. Last week I said, I, I told you guys to murmur a couple times. Missy leaned over to Amy when I said it the second time. She, He's so weird. And I thought about defending myself, but I'm so weird. So get ready to murmur again. Because I think this one's even, even more shocking. Look at verse 27 real quick. It says, how to pity for him, the king. How to pity for the servant who owes $22 trillion in debt. Out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave the debt. Murmur. What? Right? Everybody in the room is going, man, that's an absurd amount of money. And then all of a sudden we hear he's been forgiven and they go, no, 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 wait a minute. That no, $22 trillion in debt, you're going to forgive this guy? That is, that is absurd. That's foolish. No king would do that. I hope some of you know where I'm going. Now, what would we do? Would we spend, would we spend even one second, one, one nanosecond of our lives not Cheering for joy, knowing that we had been forgiven $22 trillion in debt. Listen, listen, real quick. Because I'm not sure, maybe you don't know where I'm going. King is God. We are the servant in debt. Our, our debt is uh, the debt of our sin. And he has come to us. Be, and, and he said, he said, your debt, your debt is forgiven. Amen. Hallelujah. You're not dancing and shouting and jumping around. I don't know if you get it. It's crazy, right? It's, it's absurd. It's, it's almost foolish. How could, how could any self-respecting God of the universe, creator and sustainer, forgive me of such an enormously ridiculous debt? The kingdom of heaven is like this king, Jesus said. Praise the Lord. But unfortunately, unfortunately, it doesn't stop there. But when that same servant, the same servant that just was received $22 trillion of debt relief, he went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii, 100 days wage. Let's pretend you work for Eight hours a day at just a bit over minimum wage because it's easier to calculate. Ten dollars an hour. That's eighty dollars a day for a hundred days. That's eight. 
thousand dollars. Eight thousand dollars debt. Now let's let's clarify this for a minute. When in comparison to twenty-two trillion dollars, it's nothing, absolutely nothing. But this is a large debt. This is probably one of the largest debts that people would accumulate because at some point you say enough is enough. You got to either pay me the debts or I'm not going to give you any more. It's going to be nearly impossible for this person to get get out of his debts. But what does, does he do? And it says, and he seized him. He being, and, and seizing him, servant who is forgiven, seizes the man who has the debt, and he began to choke him. Saying, pay what you owe. So the servant fell down and, and pleaded with him, have patience with me, I will pay it. Does that sound familiar? He was doing it a little bit ago, probably an hour earlier, he was begging the king to release $22 trillion in debt, and then it was given to him, $22 trillion of debt relief was given to him, and now he's got this guy saying, I got, I got $8,000 of debt to you. Will you please forgive me? I will pay you back. Now, the first guy would never, ever, ever pay back $22 trillion in debt. But this guy, yeah, it's going to be hard, but he might. Verse 30. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. How do you pay a debt when you're in prison? You can't. And when his fellow servants saw what he had what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went to the and reported to their master all that the that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. And so also the heavenly father will, will do everyone will do everyone of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Loved ones of God, we need to make sure that we are very clear that sin is in fact a big deal. And unforgiveness is in fact a big deal. And we who have been forgiven an absurd debt should be the very first people to forgive all who have debts to us because their debts are absolutely nothing in comparison to our own. But sadly, sadly, the church is not necessarily marked by its willingness to forgive. How could we possibly proclaim that God is a God who forgives if we ourselves are not willing to proclaim it by forgiving? But what did I say at the start? That is not the point of this parable. The point of this parable is that the king is generous with his forgiveness. And it is only magnified by the realization that we ourselves are not forgivers. The, the, the thing that this guy does in response to having an $8,000 debt not being paid is probably fairly normal. It's normal, natural human condition. You are normal and natural unforgivers. 
But God is not like us. God is not like us. Amen? But you know what's even more amazing? Are, are you amazed? Anybody in this room as amazed as I, as I am? I mean, really. Are you amazed at how, how, how massive a debt you are, you are being forgiven? But it's even further than this. Jesus is telling this parable before he goes to the cross. And something changes at the cross. The Bible teaches us, and we, and we, we give these things, they're called catechisms, where, we, where it's like an a, a question and an answer. It helps us remember theology. New City Catechism asks this question, will sin go unpunished? Because in this, it seems like his debt is going unpunished until he, forget, he doesn't forgive. But in, in the New City Catechism, the response is this. No, sin does not go unpunished. Every sin is against the sovereignty and holiness and goodness of God and against His righteous law. And God is righteously angry with our sin and will bring judgment, will bring punishment upon them in His just judgment both in this life and in the life to come. God does not let our sin just go. He took it upon Himself in His Son Jesus. God is not just saying, I don't need to look at your $22 trillion of debt anymore. He sent His Son to the cross to shed His blood, to to. Give his body so that, so that I, a sinner in $22 trillion in debt, might be redeemed of that debt. And then, and then he sent his son to come to this earth to suffer and die on the cross so that you might have your $22 trillion of debt forgiven and you could have your $22 trillion of debt forgiven. Anybody. It's It's foolish. Isn't it? The God who created the universe, who demands of us perfection, would forgive our debts. But aren't we glad He's not like us? Aren't we glad that the kingdom of heaven is like this king? Who, without reservation or hesitation, He's given us His Son, Jesus, to pay the debt that we rightly owe. There's very little more that we can say than hallelujah. Praise God. For He is good. Let's pray. Father God, we quite simply are in awe of how forgiving you are. Or sometimes we might ask the question, how can a how can a sinner like me not forgive? I think sometimes, Lord, you teach us it's because we just simply don't know what you have how much you have forgiven us. 
Let us today embrace and realize the magnitude of your forgiveness. Let that change us, transform us into beings who would forgive who forgive debts that are little, but also would forgive debts that are enormous. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have rescued and redeemed us by the blood and work of your Son, Jesus, and that we no longer stand before you as debtors to our, because of our sin. but as those who are clean and debt-free. And we praise your name. We lift your name on high in song. It's in and through and for the glory of Jesus our Lord.